السلام عليكم ورحمة الله وبركاته الحمد لله رب العالمين والصلاة والسلام على سيد المرسلين وخاتم النبيين محمد وعلى آله وصحبه أجمعين ما بعد فعوذ بالله من الشيطان الرجيم بسم الله الرحمن الرحيم إن الله وملائكته يصلون على النبي يا أيها الذين آمنوا صلوا عليه وسلموا تسليما اللهم صل على سيدنا محمد النبي الأمي وعلى آله وسلم تسليما Respected listeners We continue with the topic of hasad, envy Today inshallah will be the final part I've already spoken on this in some detail over the past two sessions. As I've explained, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and His Rasul sallallahu alayhi wa sallam have warned us against hasad envy. They have both condemned it. Allah and His Rasul sallallahu alayhi wa sallam have condemned hasad and warned us against it. And I've already explained many of the dangers from the Qur'an and the Hadith. In the last session, I was explaining how hasad is a fire, how it burns a person from within before it harms someone else mentioned a few poems and I reminded us that hasad makes no envy, hasad makes no sense it's illogical it's irrational it's unproductive it doesn't achieve anything and the prophets of Allah have spoken of hasad as being fire. Poets have spoken of hasad as being a fire. It's destructive. Hasad leads to intense rage within which consumes a person, robs them of their sanity, of their sleep, of their peace and tranquility and serenity. It's self-inflicted punishment. It truly is. It's a wound. One wise person said that hasad, al-hasad jurhun la yabara. Hasad is a wound which festers and which never heals. And then he continues to say, meaning it's punishment enough for the envious person, what he actually feels and faces and experiences himself. That's punishment enough for him. So forget the punishment in the akhirah, the punishment in the dunya which he inflicts on himself or herself is bad enough. 
I've mentioned before the Imam al-Hasim al-Basri, rahmatullahi alayhi. He, others have actually said the same thing, but one of the people to whom this statement is attributed is Imam al-Hasim al-Basri, rahmatullah. And he said that, مَا رَأَيْتُ ظَالِمًا أَشْبَهَ بِمَظْلُومٍ مِّنْ حَاسِدٍ نَفَسٌ دَائِمْ وَحُزْنٌ لَازِمْ وَعَبْرَةٌ لَا تَنْفَدٍ he said, I have never seen a tyrant, an oppressor, a wrongdoer, who is actually more like the victim. So I've never seen an oppressor actually more like, a, more like the oppressed. I've never seen a tyrant actually more like a victim than an envious person, i.e. that if you look at an envious person, in reality the envious person is the aggressor and the envied is his victim. The envious person is the tyrant, he's the one who's being tyrannical. And the victim of his envy is the victim, is the oppressed one. He should be the one who's suffering. The envious person is a wrongdoer, clearly. And the victim of his envy is innocent. And yet, more than the innocent, envied person, the envier, the aggressor, the oppressor, appears to be the greater victim. Why? Because if you look at him, and then he describes him with these three phrases, nafasun da'im wa huznun lazim wa abratun la tanfad, meaning, nafasun da'im, endless sighs. Endless sighs. So the envious person is always looking at the other, the object of his envy, and is always heaving. Great sighs taking in long breaths, in exasperation, in frustration, in agony, in anguish. And the breathing doesn't help. So long sighs, endless sighs. وَحُزْنٌ lazim, Inseparable grief. Constant grief. وَعَبْرَةٌ لَا تَنْفَدْ And tears that never end. Never-ending tears, inseparable grief, endless sighs. This is the burden that the envier carries on himself or herself. It makes no sense whatsoever. One of the it's reported that one of the scholars met a Bedouin who was 120 years old. Now this isn't far fetched. Obviously, they would be counting in lunar years. So, a few years younger. Every approximately 33 years, you drop a year. So still, uh, 115, 116 years. So he met a Bedouin who was 120 years of age. So he said to him, what's your secret? How have you lived so long? You know his reply? He said, 
I abandoned Hesed envy so I survived. It's good for the soul to be at peace. Give up envy. It doesn't achieve anything. Envy will never get you what you want. So it makes no sense, neither from a religious perspective, a worldly perspective. It just doesn't make sense. In fact, envy can lead to great harm. It can lead you, of course, it'll punish you and hurt you before anyone else. But if that envy incites you to aggression, to bad behavior, to actually harming and hurting the victim of your envy, then you are damned in the dunya and in the akhirah. And that happens, of course it's happened, as I've given explanations of the prophets of Allah and innocent people who were the object of envy. Yusuf suffered at the hands of his own blood brothers. And that was from a family of prophets. The Prophet suffered the ill effects of envy on many occasions. All the messengers of Allah were victims of envy. So, envy can incite a person to committing misdeeds, violence, harm, hurt. That can lead to crime, punishment in the dunya. It can lead to grave sin, punishment in the akhirah. Truly. Because you wish harm on the other person. Envy leads to shamata. So even if you can't harm that person, what happens is you pray for harm to befall that person. That's exactly what shamata is, which is schadenfreude, gloating, and feeling and expressing glee and joy at the misfortune and suffering of others. And that's not the behavior of a believer. It's a behavior not of a mu'min, but of a munafiq. As I explained before, Allah says, describing the hypocrites in the Qur'an and addressing the Sahaba radiyallahu anhum, إِن تَمْسَسْكُمْ حَسَنَةٌ تَسُوْهُمْ وَإِن تُصِبْكُمْ سَيِّئَةٌ يَفْرَحُوا بِهَا That if good fortune meets you, so if Allah blesses you with a favor, and you meet good fortune, the su'hum, it hurts them. It hurts the hypocrites. Not the believers. It hurts the hypocrites. So we should ask ourselves, when someone meets good fortune, are we happy or are we hurt? If we're happy, that's a sign of iman. If we hurt, that's a sign of hypocrisy. And when misfortune befalls someone, when ill fortune afflicts them, are we happy or are we hurt? Allah told the Sahaba radiyallahu anhum, in tamsaskum hasanatun tasu'hum. If good fortune meets you, it hurts them. وَإِن تُصِبْكُمْ سَيِّئَةٌ يَفْرَحُوا بِهَا And if a misfortune, if a calamity befalls you, they rejoice at it. I, the hypocrites. The believers do not rejoice. When you are hurt, O companions of the Messenger of Allah, the true believers are hurt. When you are afflicted by a misfortune or a calamity, they are hurt too, because they are believers. But the hypocrites are happy at your hurt and are hurt at your happiness.
So we need to ask ourselves, truly, when we see someone else being happy, it could be for anything. A car, clothes, beauty, handsomeness, appearance, wealth, a house, a job, a career, a qualification, a good result, attention, absolutely anything. If we are happy at their happiness, that's a sign of iman and faith. If we are hurt at their hurt, that's a sign of iman and faith. If we are happy at their hurt, and hurt at their happiness, that's hypocrisy. It truly is. That's how the hypocrites were at the time of the Messenger These are the traits of hypocrisy till the day of reckoning. And do you know why it's a sign of iman? As I explained last week, Imam Nasa'i rahmatullahi alayhi relates a hadith from Abu Hurairah radiyallahu an. The Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa sallam said, وَلَا يَجْتَمِعَانِ فِي قَلْبِ عَبْدٍ الْإِيمَانَ وَالْحَسَدِ That two things do not merge, they do not coexist. They cannot come together in the heart of a servant. Iman and hasad, faith and envy. And do you know why that is? And this is why Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam says in a hadith related by Imam Bukhari, Muslim and others from Anas ibn Malik radiyallahu an لا يؤمن أحدكم حتى يحب لأخيه ما يحب لنفسه One of you cannot believe, one of you does not believe, one of you truly does not believe until he desires, he loves for his brother that which he loves for himself. Do you know why Iman and Hasid cannot combine in a heart? It's very simple. Because a mu'min believes that everything comes from Allah. So when, if a mu'min believes in Allah, part of that iman is that Allah gives to whom he wills, withholds from whom he wills. So if everything is from the bounty of Allah, that's why Allah says, when the Quraysh objected, to the prophethood of the Prophet ﷺ. And their demand was that, why wasn't the Qur'an revealed to a great man from one of the two cities, Mecca and Ta'if? They said, why wasn't the Qur'an revealed to a great man of the two cities? Allah's reply was, أَهُمْ يَقْسِمُونَ رَحْمَةَ رَبِّكَ what do they distribute the mercy of your Lord? That, Allah continues, I'll explain this verse again in a moment. That, what do they distribute the mercy of your Lord? It's Allah's mercy. It's Allah's bounty. It's Allah's grace. When the messengers were objected to, that why, why, why were they chosen by Allah? وَإِذَا جَاءَتْهُمْ آيَةٌ قَالُوا لَنْ نُؤْمِنَ حَتَّى نُؤْتَى مِثْلَ مَا أُوْتِيَ رُسُلُ اللَّهِ اللَّهُ أَعْلَمُ حَيْثُ يَجْعَلُ رِسَالَتَهِ They said, whenever a sign came to them, i.e. the former messengers and the, their peoples, the people said, 
We will not believe until we are given the like of what these messengers have been given. So Allah's reply to them was also, Allahu a'lamu haythu yaj'alu risalata. Allah knows best where to place his prophethood. Allah knows best where to place his messengerhood, his prophethood. Allah knows best who, on whom he should bestow his mercy, on whom he should grant, bestow his uh, favours. To whom he should bestow, to whom he should grant his mercy and favor. Allah knows best. Do we know? Or Allah knows? قُلْ إِنَّ الْفَضْلِ بِيَدِ اللَّهِ يُؤْتِيهِ مَنْ يَشَاءُ وَاللَّهُ وَاسِعٌ عَدِيمٌ يَخْتَصُ بِرَحْمَتِهِ مَنْ يَشَاءُ وَاللَّهُ ذُو الْفَضْلِ الْعَظِيمِ Allah says to the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa sallam in the Quran, say, indeed, bounty, grace, is in the hand of Allah. He gives it to whom he wills. And Allah is all bountiful, all knowing. He makes exclusive his mercy for whom he wishes. And Allah is full of immense bounty. Allah is one of great bounty. So this is a bounty of Allah. When a mu'min believes in Allah, he believes in the mercy of Allah, the gifts of Allah, the bounties of Allah, and most importantly, he believes in the wisdom of Allah and in the choice of Allah. He doesn't object to the choice of Allah. That's part of Iman, that I believe in Allah and I believe in the choice of Allah. So if Allah has given someone a car, why? I'm a believer. That car, that gift, that wealth is actually part of my Iman in Allah. That gift, if Allah has given someone a gift, that gift to that person is actually part of my iman in Allah. It's part of my faith. Because he hasn't acquired it himself. Allah's given it to him. Allah's chosen to give it to him. Why should I object to the choice of Allah? If I believe in Allah, I believe in the choice of Allah. I believe in the selection of Allah. I believe in the grace and bounty and the bestowing of Allah. Simple. Once a pair, this is why Rasulullah says, Iman and Hasid cannot combine and coexist in a heart of a servant. Because they are contradictory. You can't believe in Allah and be envious of someone. Just as Abdullah ibn Mas'ud said, La tu'adu ni'am Allah. Do not oppose, do not be enemies of the blessings of Allah. So his students said, how can we be the enemies of the blessings of Allah? So he told them that those who object and question, object to and question the choice and the bestowing of Allah's favor, they are the enemies of the blessings of Allah. And he quoted the verse of the Qur'an in which Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, أَمْ يَحْسُدُونَ النَّاسَ عَلَى مَا آتَاهُمُ اللَّهُ مِنْ فَضْلِهِ What? Are they envious? Do they envy the people? That which Allah has bestowed on them of his grace. So if a person envies anyone, the gift or the gifts that Allah has granted them, they are, by the testimony of Abdullah ibn Mas'ud radiallahu anh, 
enemies of the blessings of Allah. Simple. Given all of this, it truly is easier, far better for the heart, for the mind, for the soul, for one's sanity, for one's mental and emotional health, for one's own happiness to accept. To accept what Allah has given others. Acceptance. A person is happier, relieved, truly is relieved. And that's part of his iman in Allah. It's part of the iman of qadr of Allah. We believe in Allah, we believe in the choice of Allah, we believe in the qadr of Allah. Someone, if someone has been given something by Allah, that's qadr. And from a number of hadith we learn that a person will never realize the reality of faith. A person will never reach the reality of faith until he believes that that which was going to reach him will never miss him and that which was going to miss him would, was never going to reach him. As Abdullah ibn Abbas relates in that hadith from related by Imam Tirmidhi and others. وَعْلَمْ أَنَّ مَا أَصَابَكَ لَمْ يَكُنْ لِيُخْطِئَكَ وَأَنَّ مَا أَخْطَأَكَ لَمْ يَكُنْ لِيُصِيبَكَ And know that that which afflicted you, which reached you, was never going to miss you. And know that that which missed you was never going to reach you. They say in English, a miss is as good as a mile. And you know how that's related to this hadith? Of course, it's not originally related, but one of the meanings is, if someone says, that I was that close to getting it, I was this close to getting that job, I was this close to marrying that person, just that much. In English, as the saying is, a miss is as good as a mile. Meaning, it doesn't matter whether you were that close or you're a mile away. You missed it. It was never going to reach you. And that's the meaning of the hadith. And know that that which missed you was never going to reach you. So there's no point agonizing over the fact that you were this close. The reality is, it was always going to be a miss because Allah had not destined it for you. So, to be at peace, you let go. You let go of agonizing over what other people have, of what others have achieved, of what others have been given. And one shouldn't think that, why him, not me? Why her, not me? I'm deserving. The reality is, no one knows what the other person is living through or suffering. Someone, khayran. So, if someone, let's say, 
has been given beauty. And others see them as being very beautiful. I'm giving these examples because the reality is we have given examples of cars and homes and jobs and qualifications and careers and money and wealth and bank balances and clothes, handsomeness and beauty. And if you're wondering, why do I need to mention these things? Well, unfortunately, this is our reality. Do we envy someone who's a hafiz of the Qur'an? Do we envy someone because they pray? Do we? Do we envy someone who tries to follow in the footsteps of the Messenger of Allah No, we think he's an idiot. We label him as a mullah, a malvi. In Urdu, they don't say, mashallah, he's a pious man. They just dismissively say, Malvi type banda. Malvi type banda. That he's a Malvi like slave, servant, person. So we're never envious of someone being religious or pious. If anything, we judge them, we mock them, we ridicule them. We question their sanity. We think there's something wrong with them. We don't even want to be like them. Why would we envy them? We don't even want to be like them. These are the things we envy of the dunya. So I was giving the example of beauty. If someone's beautiful, if Allah has bestowed beauty on someone, and we feel that we are not as beautiful as them, how are we going to change that reality? Huh. What are we going to do that will make us more beautiful and them ugly? Other than committing a crime and a great sin and defacing them, scarring them, hurting them, disfiguring them, what else can a person do? Nothing. That's the gift of Allah to them. Nothing can be done. It's a qadr of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and that's true for everything. Acceptance. When a person accepts, they will be at peace. They truly will be at peace. So, one should let go. One should just drop hasid. So, Famous question is, okay then, how do we drop hasad? Like you drop a burning coal. How do you drop hasad like you drop a burning coal? There's no strategy. You can't be holding on to burning cinders and tell someone, right, how do I get rid of this? Show me a way, guide me, advise me, counsel me, lead me, demonstrate to me. How do I get rid of this? And you're burning at the same time. What do you do? You drop it. You do it yourself. It, it, you know, let me give you an example.
waswasa plural wasawis which means whisperings doubts invasive thoughts ulama throughout history throughout history whenever ulama have been asked how do i get rid of doubts how do i get rid of invasive thoughts how do i get rid of persistent doubts so a good example is ocd obsessive compulsive disorder now obsessive compulsive disorder isn't just about someone constantly washing their hands or checking the door to see if they locked it obsessive compulsive disorder ocd can be about anything it can be about intrusive invasive repetitive thoughts that just don't seem to go away and those thoughts could be about anything truly sometimes these thoughts are about doubts regarding one's spouse these thoughts are about another person a person's constantly ruminating about what others think of them these thoughts could be about hygiene washing hands locking doors it's not the subject of these repetitive compulsive obsessive invasive intrusive thoughts it's not the subject it's the process it's the cognition that really matters so in arabic you call these invasive repetitive obsessive thoughts and doubts wasawis jam'a waswasa meaning yeah, it means a doubt a whisper so throughout history ulama have always been approached in fact it's one of the most persistent questions i get i have these repetitive intrusive doubts doubts or thoughts what do i do how do i tackle them it's very painful it truly is and do you know what the standard advice of the ulama has been throughout history invariably they've always said one thing teacher after teacher sheikh after sheikh murabbi after murabbi spiritual master after spiritual master saints and scholars alike have always said exactly the same thing do you know what they've said stop don't think get rid of it now people walk away people walk away and they say i approach this person with a huge problem and they just dismissively told me stop thinking dismiss the thought i can't that's a problem now over the past few years especially in the last one or two decades neuroscientists neurologists neuroscientists have actually looked into the neurological processes of obsessive compulsive disorder and they've actually developed strategies to help people overcome ocd and in many cases they have just one advice 
Do you know? These neuroscientists and neurologists and psychologists who specialize in OCD, they have one answer. Stop thinking. They say exactly the same as ulama have been saying from the time of Rasulullah sallallahu No fancy strategies. Stop thinking. And they say this on the basis of neuroscience by observing how the brain actually works during its episodes of OCD and how that can be stopped, how that can be tackled and controlled. In fact, some of them advise as a 90-second rule. If you stop thinking negatively within 90 seconds, this is according to some research. Within nine seconds, if you stop thinking about something negative, then the brain can actually move on to other things. Because a brain is a tool. If you let it, it's like a car. You take the hands off your, if you take your hands off the steering wheel, the car will continue to run. It'll just go anywhere and everywhere. The brain has no direction. It truly doesn't. It will leap from thing to thing. Unless you grab the steering wheel and you take charge, you take control, and you steer and guide the car, stopping and starting it when you wish. So similarly with the brain, you take hold of the steering wheel. You guide it. You direct it. And you control it. So how do you stop a car? You slam the brakes. How do you obsessively stop thinking about something? You physically train yourself. No one else can do it for you. You train yourself to stop thinking. And do you know what these neuroscientists and neurologists have actually discovered? By observing the brains of their patients, they've discovered what they call neuroplasticity, which is that by adopting this practice of forcibly stopping yourself thinking about something and forcing your brain to think about something else, you actually bring about physical changes in the cells and the synapses of your brain. No one else can do it for you. Now, why did I give that lengthy explanation? Same with Hasid. How do you tackle hasad? You let go. There's no fancy strategy. You let go. Nobody else can do it for you. Hasad is fire. How do you let go of hasad? You let go of hasad as you would let go of a burning cinder, of a burning coal, of fire in your hands. You drop it, you train yourself, you discipline yourself, you force yourself to drop it and to move on. Force yourself to pray for the other person. Someone has a blessing, say, MashaAllah, wala hawla wala quwwata illa billah, what Allah wished. So you remind yourself that this is what Allah wished. Who am I to object to what Allah wished? And there is no strength and there is no power except, in, except with Allah. I.e., Allah chose to give this person this thing. Now, I have absolutely no power to take it from them. I had no power 
to claim it for myself. Because all power lies with Allah. I have no strength to deprive this person of what Allah chose to give him. This is Allah's choice, Allah's wisdom. You pray for the other person. May Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala bless them. Further, in their gift of Allah. That's the way to relieve oneself of this burden. There's no other fancy strategy. Nobody else can do it for you. We have to learn to do it ourselves. So even from a non-religious perspective, it makes perfect sense to be at ease, to be at peace. Many people of the world, even non-Muslims, many non-Muslims throughout history, they've renounced the dunya. They've given up their possessions, their wealth, their belongings. They've led a simple life. Because they've discovered that therein lies happiness. Not in being attached to wealth and in chasing after the dunya. Because there's no end to it. We are slaves to other things. And it never ends. We think that, okay, if I get that, I'll be happy. We get that, we're still not happy. If I get that, I'll be happy. We get that, we're still not happy. The pauper is in anguish, and the rich man is in anguish. What do we want, as I keep on relating that poem, صَغِيرٌ يَوَدُّ الْكِبَرَ وَكَبِيرٌ يَوَدُّ الصِّغَرَ وَخَالٍ يَشْتَهِي عَمَلَ وَذُو عَمَلٍ بِهِ قَدْ دَجِرَ وَذُو مَالٍ فِي تَعْبٍ وَفِي تَعْبٍ مَنْ افْتَقَرَ فَهَلْ حَارُوا مَعَ الْأَقْدَارِ أَمْ هُمْ حَيِّرُوا الْقَدَرَ Meaning, the little one wants to be old and the old wants to be young. It's true, children. Allahu alam. But I remember when I was a child, I didn't think, oh, I wish I could just remain an innocent child for the rest of my life. I never thought that. We used to look at the old people. He can drive. I wish I was an adult. I could drive. In fact, I used to see older people writing with a pen and important papers. And I used to think to myself, I can't wait to become an adult so that I can sign papers and sign checks. When I was a child. Please don't tell me that I was alone in such thoughts. I'm sure that every child looks at adults and the fact that they drive, the fact that they can go out when they want. We used to think... I can't go out to play when I want. But they can go out whenever they want. So I wish I was an adult. So children want to be adults. And when we are adults, we all say, I wish I was a child. That's what the poet says. The poet continues. That the unemployed seeks employment. And the employed is tired and frustrated of his employment. The jobless want jobs. And the ones who have jobs look at the jobless and say, I wish I was in his place. The poet doesn't mention anything about marriage, but I'm sure. <laughs> A line could be added that those who are married wish they were single. And those who are single wish they were married. 
For those who are single, be careful of what you wish for. It's a sentence. And the third lie. That the one of wealth is in pain and fatigue. And the one who is poor is also pained and fatigued. So are they bewildered by the qadr of Allah or have they bewildered the qadr of Allah itself? What do we want? So we think wealth bring, will bring us happiness. The things of the dunya will bring us happiness. And we look at others and we always think, I wish I was in his shoes. I wish I, wish I was in her place. I want to be like him. Not like him, I want to be better than him. I want to be better than her. And eventually, if we do get what they have, we're still not happy. We look at someone else. Some people, they wish to be... It's all about, it's all to do with the nafs, the ego. It truly is. First, a person. You have everything... A person needs food. A human being needs air. Then water. Then food. Then shelter. Then, then clothing. Then shelter. Once these basic necessities have been taken care of, then the body is taken care of. The mind is restless. So what does a mind want? The mind wants stimulation and entertainment. They need conversation, they need company. Once they have, and the mind has entertainment, the body has all its needs taken care of, the mind has its needs taken care of through entertainment and mental stimulation, then, still not happy. The nafs, the nafs wants its nourishment too. But the nafs is something else. See, the body is of this world. So the body being of this world will only want the nourishment of this world. So the body comes from the earth, the nourishment of the body will come from the earth. But the soul is not earthly, it's not from this world. It has its, it has its link to heaven. It's celestial in origin. So you think the soul, the ruh, the nafs will be satisfied with food and drink and clothing and shelter or entertainment? No. It won't. The ego, the lower self, the nafs, because it's heavenly in origin, it's celestial in origin, it's nourishment can also only come from the sky. If it's good, its nourishment will be spirituality, will be the Qur'an, will be the love of Allah and His Rasul But the lower self, if it's not pious, if it's not pure, it will still want nourishment. But do you know what its nourishment will be? It wants to rival Allah. So the food for the nafs is not food and drink and clothing and entertainment and shelter. It's attention. 
its adoration, its adulation, its worship. This is why Allah says, Have you seen one who has made his soul his God? It wishes to be God, nothing else. This is why some people have immeasurable wealth. They have all the comforts and luxury you may want. And throughout history, what has happened? People aren't satisfied by that, with that. They want to be leaders. And when they are leaders, they want to be the leader of leaders. They want to be kings. They want to be monarchs. And throughout history, what's happened? Muslim or non-Muslim, even in our Muslim history, you will discover that through the rule of primogeniture, which is when the son or the, the eldest child takes the monarchy, what happens? There, are, there is rivalry between the siblings, and in order to ascend the throne, the eldest brother or one of the brothers will often kill, kill his own blood brothers that he grew up playing with. And history is littered with, replete with such examples of brothers slaying each other in order to ascend the throne. So no one's happy being a leader. They want to be the leader of leaders. And even when they become leader of their nation, of their fiefdom, of their kingdom, they, aren't, they are still not satisfied. That nafs drives them such aggression that they want to conquer other lands, conquer other worlds. Millions of people have been killed as a result. Millions. It makes no difference. Muslim, non-Muslim, it doesn't make any difference. Believers in a religion, believers in no religion. Throughout history, all kinds of people have invaded. Merely for reputation, for honour, for glory. Killed millions of people. Built mountains of skulls, literally. For what? Not because they needed food, not because they needed drink. Not because they were driven to poverty, and not only because they needed Lebensraum. Lebensraum. The German word for living space, which was the justification for Hitler's expansion. So even that wasn't true. It's all about being egomaniacal. Egomaniacs, to do with the ego. That's what the ego wants. There's no end to it. And when someone becomes the most famous, the most powerful person, and the leader of the most powerful nation on earth, and there's nothing else to conquer, they're still not happy. They still behave like children. Man-child. And being at the peak of power, unparalleled, unrivaled, the ego of this person still leaves them restless and unhappy. Why? Because, oh, people liked my predecessor more than they like me. I'm hurt. I'm in pain. The crowds were bigger for my predecessor than they are for me. 
No problem, I'll just lie. My crowds are bigger. But they aren't, and he knows they aren't. And still, he puts on a show, a face, a mask, but deep within, suffering like a petulant child. What more power could a person want? This is it. The ego has no end. So this is what we envy in others. The reality is even when we get it, we won't be happy. So rather than going through all of that lengthy and laborious process to discover at the end of one's life that it was all wasted, it was all for nothing, why not just drop that envy now? Simple. Drop it now and be happy to the best of one's ability. One can truly be at peace. Peace to be at peace with oneself, to be at peace with Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Because this is what Allah wants from a person. And that's why Allah says, وَلَا تَتَمَنَّوْ مَا فَضَّلَ اللَّهُ بِهِ بَعْضُكُمْ عَلَىٰ بَعْضٍ لِلْرِجَالِ نَصِيبٌ مِّمَّا اكْتَسَبُوا وَلِلنِّسَاءِ نَصِيبٌ مِّمَّا اكْتَسَبُوا وَاسْأَلُوا اللَّهَ مِنْ فَضْلِهِ Allah says, and do not covet, do not aspire to, do not desire that which Allah has given in his bounty and grace to others over you. For men is a share of what they have earned and for women is a share of what they have earned. And ask and seek of the bounty of Allah. Ask Allah of his bounty. Indeed, Allah is all-knowing of all things. So, do not covet what others have. This is why I said earlier, one of the treatments of envy is, uh, one of the cures of envy is dua. Pray to Allah. Rather than looking at someone else and squirming in anguish and burning from within, why not just think to oneself, Alhamdulillah, I'm happy for that person. I would like something of the same. Without any malice towards this individual. So what should I do? Allah says, ask Allah of his bounty. All of that energy that one expends in hating, in seething, in raging, in coveting, in thinking obsessively about the other person, why not expend that energy, one in dua, pray to Allah, ask him of his bounty, and in trying, if you really want the same thing, just try yourself. Try for it. And that's what Allah says, do not desire, do not aspire to, do not covet. That which Allah has given of his bounty to some of you over others, that's a fact of life. Life isn't equal. The dunya is not equal. Allah's choices in giving to people, sorry, Allah's gifts are not equal. That's true. They are not equal. Because Allah says so in the Quran. I said earlier that I will expand on that verse in a moment, and this is that same verse. When the Quraysh said, why wasn't the Qur'an revealed to one of the two men, one, one of two men, one, a great man of one of the two cities, Makkah or Taif? What, what was Allah's reply? 
أهم يقسمون رحمة ربك What do they distribute the mercy of your Lord نحن قسمنا بينهم معيشتهم في الحياة الدنيا I said I'll comment on this in a moment Allah says What do they distribute the mercy of your Lord We have distributed their livelihood For them in the worldly life And then Allah says وَرَفَعْنَا بَعْضَهُمْ فَوْقَ بَعْضٍ And we have elevated some of them over others in many ranks. That's a fact of life. We are not equal. We all, we all need each other. We all depend on each other because Allah has given some of us some things and others other things. So that some of you may take each other in employment. So we need each other. We depend on each other. But then Allah ends the verse with the words, وَرَحْمَةُ رَبِّكَ خَيْرٌ مِمَّا يَجْمَعُونَ And the mercy of your Lord is far better than that which they gather. So the, the lesson in there is that you are not equal in the dunya. Some of you have more than others. Truly, some of you have more than others. Look at the Prophet Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala made others richer than the Messenger Truly. When he first married, Allah made his wife richer than him. Think of that. Think of that. Allah made his wife richer than him. In fact, Allah says in Surah Al-Duha, وَوَجَدَكَ عَائِلًا فَأَغْنَى Did Allah not find you in need and then enriched you? How did Allah enrich the Prophet ﷺ through his marriage to Umm al-Mu'mineen Khadija She was wealthy and he became wealthy and sufficient through her wealth. So... He made his wife richer than him. And then in later years, he and his wives led a life of simplicity. And other Sahaba were richer than the Prophet and his family and household. It's Allah's choice. But why has Allah chosen to elevate some of us over others in the dunya? Because the reality is it doesn't mean anything. It means nothing to Allah, as is mentioned in the hadith. That if the dunya was worth the wing of a net, sorry, if, if the dunya was worth the wing of a net, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala wouldn't have given a sip of water to those whom he does not desire. The world is not worth the wing of a net. That's why Allah gives to everyone. And in one verse of the Quran, Allah says, Man kan Whoever wants the quick life, one of the names of dunya is ajila. One of the names of dunya is ajila. In fact, do you know what one of the meanings of dunya is? 
One of the meanings, we, we always say dunya, what does it mean? What does dunya mean? Of course it means a world, but what does it originally mean? One of the meanings of dunya is low hanging. Something which is close. For those of you who know Arabic, adna, dunya is the mu'annath of adna. Adna means aqrab. So dunya means qurba. So one of the meanings of dunya is that which is close. So obviously this life is closer to us than the afterlife. So that's one of the meanings. Another meaning is that which is low-hanging. So fruits that are low-hanging. It's dunya. One of the other meanings of dunya is quite simple. Love. One of the meanings of dunya is love. Because that which is closer and nearer is lower. So one of the meanings of dunya is low. <clears throat> one of the other names for the dunya, for the world, is ajila, i.e. the quick life. So that's what Allah refers to here. Man kan ajila, whoever seeks the quick life. Fine. Then we will quickly give to those whom we wish whatever we wish. You want something quick? Instant? We'll give you something instant. But then after that, there is nothing. You want something quick? We'll give you something quick. You want something instant? You'll have something instant. But after that, there is no share for you in the life of eternity. And then Allah says in the next verse, وَمَنْ أَرَادَ الْآخِرَةِ وَسَعَى لَهَا سَعْيَهَا وَهُوْ مُؤْمِنْ فَأُولَٰئِكَ كَانَ سَعْيُهُمْ مَشْكُورًا And whoever seeks the afterlife, as opposed to the instant life. The akhirah as opposed to the ajila. And not only does he seek, not only does he seek the afterlife, but he strives for it in belief. Whilst believing, he strives, the striving. He makes the correct effort for the afterlife. So Allah says, These are the people whose effort shall be rewarded and appreciated. Then Allah says, and this is a verse that I wanted to get to, Allah says, having spoken of those who want the instant life, as well as those who want the akhirah. So Allah speaks of both. Allah says, To each, i.e., whether you want the instant life, or whether you want the afterlife, it doesn't matter. To both, to the good and the bad, the pious and the Sinful. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, To each we give and we increase of the bounty of your Lord. Ha'ula'i wa ha'ula, these and these, min ata'i rabbik, from the gift of your Lord. And the bounty, the gift of your Lord, is not restricted to anyone. So Allah doesn't reward on piety. Remember this, the Quran tells us that Allah doesn't give you the dunya on piety. See, if Allah has given you a good house, don't think that, MashaAllah, this is the result of my good deeds. I am pious. That's why Allah has given me wealth. 
If Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala wanted to reward piety with wealth in the dunya, he would have made his messenger of Allah the richest man ever. Rather, he lived the life of a poor, simple person. So this is what we seek. This is what we are envious of. That which matters not a dot to Allah. That's why he gives to anyone. This is why he says we've given to everyone. The good, the bad, the pious, the impious. The, one, the ones who want this life or the afterlife makes no difference. To each, these and these do we give and do we increase of the bounty of your Lord. And the bounty of your Lord is not restricted to anyone. And then Allah says, Unzur, observe, watch, see how See how we have given some preference and privilege over others. Same thing. The dunya is not equal. And the reason it's not equal because it doesn't matter. Then Allah ends the verse with the words, And surely the afterlife is far greater in ranks and in grades, and is far greater in bounty and grace, and in superiority and privilege and preference. So, these are not the things we should be envious of. Because they mean nothing to Allah, absolutely nothing. Now, competition, rivalry, vying, looking at others, wanting to be like others, wanting to be in someone else's place, competing with, with others, all of this is natural part of human nature. Vying, rivaling, competition, competing, all of it's natural. So what do we do? One of the cures of envy is you don't waste your energy in hating, in raging, in envying the other person and coveting what they have or in wanting to deprive them of what they have. Rather, expend that energy, one, in praying to Allah. Make dua to Allah. Two, in trying, in striving. But does that mean that, oh, let's, uh, iman means you try hard to become rich? No. Iman doesn't mean that you try hard to become rich. Yes, Islam has encouraged the generation of wealth. It truly has. Islam has encouraged the generation of wealth. Stand on your own feet. Do not beg. Do not stretch your hands. Do not ask of others. The upper hand, meaning the giving hand, is better than the taking hand. Be givers rather than receivers. So earn, generate wealth, trade, do business. The Prophet ﷺ was a trader. Abu Bakr, Umar, Uthman, Ali were all traders. They had businesses. They traded. They had markets. Mecca was a trading town. The whole the Quran is replete with words that speak about trade, profit, loss. Buying, selling. So Islam strongly encourages the generation of wealth. But with a purpose. Once you've generated that wealth, what do you do? Be charitable. And number three, 
Do not let that wealth distract you from the remembrance of Allah. And remember that it's a test. So, make dua to Allah. And number two, strive for the same thing. But to a limit. To a limit. And if you read, because competition, vying and rivaling is natural for a person, you should direct that energy to wanting and aspiring to and desiring the right things. I mentioned right at the beginning in, uh, in the first session that there are three terms related to our discussion. One is hasad, envy that I've been discussing, which is malignant envy. Another is jealousy, which is ghayra or ghira. And I'll explain that. And the third was ghibba. Arabic, English doesn't have a word for it, but Arabic has a word. Benign envy. Where you see something, and there's no malice in your heart. You don't want that person to be deprived of it. You're not hateful. You're not seething. You're not raging. You're not glowing green with envy. You are happy for them, but you also want it for yourself. That's ghibba. And that's something I haven't actually discussed yet. But this is what Islam teaches. That yes, ghibta is permissible, i.e. benign envy, where you are happy for that person. You don't want them to lose their favour and blessing, but you want the same for yourself. But then Allah and his Rasul have also taught us that if you want something, then it should be the right thing. Why do you want something of the dunya? Why do you want to covet and envy something of the dunya and strive for it? This is why Rasulullah has taught us لا حسد إلا فثنتين لا حسد إلا فثنتين There is no envy, I benign envy. There is no ghibda. And this hadith is related by Imam Bukhari, Imam Muslim and others from Abu Hurairah radiyallahu anhu, as well as other sahaba radiyallahu anhum. La hasada illa fithnatayn. And the same hadith is related by Imam Ahmad ibn Hanbal in his musnad uh, from another sahabi, Yazid ibn al-Akhnas radiyallahu anhu. And an interesting point about this hadith in the, in the narration of Imam Ahmad ibn Hanbal in his musnad, from which companion? Yazid ibn al-Akhnas. The interesting point about this hadith and this sahabi is that this is the only hadith he relates from Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa He has no other hadith to his name. Yazid ibn al-Akhnas radiyallahu anhu, the companion, has only one hadith to his name and it's this. And the wording of his hadith is, لا تنافس بينكم إلا فثنتين. There is no competition or rivalry in you except in two things. So there is no envy in you except in two things, i.e. benign envy. And there is no competition amongst you except in two things. Meaning, there should be no competition amongst you except in two things. There should be no envy in you, no desiring in you after seeing someone else except in two things. So what are those two things? Wealth, degrees, qualifications, careers, jobs, cars, money, riches, clothes, appearance. Mansions, palatial homes, none of the sort. Nothing to do with the dunya. The words of Bukhari and Muslim are, لا حسد إلا فثنتين. 
رجل علمه الله القرآن فهو يتلوه آناء الليل وآناء النهار فسمعه جار له فقال ليتني أوتيت مثل ما أوتي فلان فعملت مثل ما يعمل There is no envy except in two things One, a man whom Allah has taught the Qur'an. So he recites the Qur'an, the words of Allah, night and day. So his neighbor hears him reciting the Qur'an night and day. And the neighbor exclaims that, How I wish, would that I had been given the gift that this person has been given, so that I can do what he does. Which is, I wish I was given the Qur'an so I could recite the Qur'an day and night. That's the first thing. The second thing in which there should be competition amongst you. There should be envy in you. Benign envy. Is a man whom Allah has given wealth. So he spends it in the truth. I.e. in the way of Allah. In charity. So another person sees him spending in charity and says... Would that I, how I wish that I would have been given the same wealth that this person has been given so that I may do what he does, i.e. give in charity. These are the only two things. Quran, knowledge and wisdom. And number two, charity. That's what we should be competing with each other. Just like Abu Bakr and Umar Prophet said, who will bring their wealth? Umar he used to always compete with Abu Bakr always, but only in good. So Umar said to himself, Imam Tirmidhi and others relate this hadith, he said to himself, if there is any day that I'm going to compete with Abu Bakr and beat him, then it shall be this day. So Umar said, the Prophet has made a plea for funds. I will gather half of my wealth, half of my entire wealth, half. Now that's no mean feat. Imagine if we were to go home and calculate all our assets and possessions, and then with one stroke of the pen decide that half of all that I own, I'm going to give in charity. So Umar said, I wish to bring half of my wealth. He brought half of his wealth to the Prophet Abu Bakr came, Prophet said, oh, Abu Bakr, what have you brought? He said, oh, Messenger of Allah, I have left Allah and his Rasul at home. He brought all that he had. Umar said, I then realized that I will never be able to beat Abu Bakr. Never be able to compete with him. He's compete with him in good. Once Abu Bakr and Umar عنهما, were discussing with Rasulullah after Isha Salah, the affairs of the Ummah. They were in the masjid, they were discussing the affairs of the Ummah after Isha Salah. Late into the night, the Prophet وسلم, Abu Bakr and Umar they then got up and began leaving. As they were walking, the Prophet ﷺ heard someone in the masjid reciting Qur'an in the darkest hours of the night, alone. 
The Prophet ﷺ halted, stood. Abu Bakr and Umar halted and stood. And the Messenger ﷺ listened. Then he said, whoever, he is reciting the Qur'an. Go and give him the glad tidings that he is reciting the Qur'an as though the Qur'an is just being revealed. Fresh. He was reciting loudly. Then the Prophet ﷺ continued. So Umar says, I went close to see who it was. It was none other than Abdullah ibn Mas'ud. So I decided that tomorrow morning, because he was engaged in Salah tomorrow morning, I shall be the first to race to him and give him the glad tidings of the Messenger of Allah. The next morning I went, I rushed to give Abdullah ibn Mas'ud the glad tidings of the Messenger of Allah that he recites the Qur'an as though the verses have just been revealed fresh. And lo and behold, I saw that Abu Bakr had beat me to it. So he would compete in everything, but only in good. And he could never beat Abu Bakr as-Siddiq in anything. So if we want to be envious, benign, envy, if we want to have what others have, if we want to look at others and say to ourselves, I wish I had that, I wish I was in his place, I wish I could do what he does, then the Messenger of Allah has told us it should only be in two things, Qur'an, knowledge and wisdom, and number two, charity. And when we say knowledge and wisdom, which is related to the Qur'an, because in some hadith the narration is not the Qur'an, but ilm and wisdom. When we say wisdom, I don't mean knowledge, because people like that. When I say Qur'an, I don't mean that people hear a Qari reciting the Qur'an, and he's sitting there on the mimbar, and swaying and reciting, and everyone saying, wah wah, mashaAllah, subhanAllah. In fact, the Prophet ﷺ has warned us that there is a special valley reserved in the hellfire for the hypocritical reciters of the Qur'an. Those who display themselves using the Qur'an. Who make a display of themselves using the Qur'an. So when we say he hears someone reciting the Qur'an, the idea isn't as, oh, mashallah, Yes, that's what I'm envious of. That's what I want to do. We go to the masjid. The masjid is full. We go to a hall. The hall is full. We go to a conference center or a tent and everyone's seated respectfully and there's a qari on the mimbar reciting the Quran in a very melodious voice. Beautiful recitation. Everyone's swaying and loving it because it's a form of entertainment and everyone wishes I wish I had a voice like that. I wish I could sit there and do that. But the words of the hadith aren't that, oh, I wish I was given the Qur'an. No, I wish I was given what he has been given so that I can do what he does. So what was a man doing? He was reciting Qur'an in the privacy of his own home. Sincerely to Allah. فَسَمِعُهُ جَارٌ So his neighbor heard This is sincere recitation. So don't aspire to knowledge and wisdom in the Qur'an in that manner. If you see a scholar, people opening doors for him, for him, picking up shoes for him, people being humble to him, 
deferential to him, respecting him, giving him gifts. He is sitting on the mimbar and everyone listening to him. Of course everyone wants this. Abu Ja'far al-Mansur, the Abbasid emperor, the Abbasid emperor, Abu Ja'far al-Mansur, who rose to the height of his power. He wiped out the Umayyads. He inherited the Umayyad kingdom. He was the architect of the grand Abbasid empire, fabled for its a thousand and one nights. Stories of glory and riches and immense, immeasurable, untold wealth and power. The emperors of Europe were paying homage to him, to the later Abbasid emperors. He had achieved everything. Do you know what he said once? Someone asked him, what is your desire? He had slaves, slave girls. He had maidens. He had riches. He had palaces. He had wealth. He had armies. He wanted nothing. He lacked nothing. What did he want? He had courtiers. He had everything. He wasn't just a rich man. He was an emperor. People's lives were spared or taken at his whim. So he was asked, your greatness, your eminence, your majesty, what do you want? What is there that is left for you to desire? Do you know what Abu Jafar al-Mansur said? He said, my desire is that I have students seated around me already with their notes and their papers and their pens. And then I say to them, حَدَّثَنَا فُلَانٌ قَالَ حَدَّثَنَا فُلَانٌ قَالَ حَدَّثَنَا فُلَانٌ That Fulan related to us, that he related to us, that he related to us. And then one of the students leans, these are his words, that one of the students leans forward and says, what did you just say again? So then I repeat it and then he makes a note. Who would do this? These were the ulama. This is what the ulama would do. We were surrounded by students. This is what they envied. What the ulama have is what even emperors do not have in their treasures. And what they envy. But is that good envy? No. So <laughs> there's a funny ending to this story, which is, so the courtiers, being courtiers, Courtiers are always sycophants, so what do they do? Your Majesty. They all ran off and came back with pens and papers. And they all sat around and said, start. <laughs> so he said, not you. I'm talking about the students with rough clothes, poor clothes, i.e. the students of ilm and hadith. So even emperors aspired to ulama being ulama. But the, not that kind of aspiration, where you want the glory it looks good, doesn't it? The Qari sitting on the mimbar, the Imam or the Shaykh or the Alim sitting on the chair and everyone sitting in front of him and he lecturing, speaking and everyone listening attentively. Everybody, nobody wants to sweep the masjid. Who wants to sweep the masjid? Anyone wants to sweep the masjid? No. Everybody wants to be the Mu'addin. They want to give adhan. And even greater than the adhan, everybody wants to lead salah. That's not about ilm, that's not about Qur'an, that's not about hikmah and wisdom, which we should be envious of. 
That's all about the ego. It's still an ego trip. So the knowledge, the wisdom, and the Qur'an that one should be envious of is that Qur'an which is purely and sincerely and exclusively only for Allah. That ilm which is only for Allah. That's what we should be envious of. Not the deference, not the respect, not the glamour and glory. Because wallahi, there is no glamour and glory in that either. Everything comes to nothing. Imam Bukhari, I've told you many times, Imam Bukhari, rahmatullah, was a victim of envy. Envy is actually quite strong amongst ulama as well. You have academic rivalry. Ulama are perpetrators of envy and victims of envy alike. Ulama are human beings. And being human, if they do not control and curb their nafs, they are as guilty of envy and covetousness as anyone else. And whereas others may envy dinar and dirham and cars and homes and clothes and belongings, ulama being a bit, more, a bit wiser, they may not envy that, but they still envy glory and fame and name. And that can lead them to doing terrible things. Ulama. So they have the Qur'an and the Hadith in their hearts. They have the knowledge of Allah and His Rasul sallallahu alayhi wasallam in their hearts. And yet they are still guilty of envy, and not benign envy, malignant envy. But why do we want that fame? Could, does, can anyone hope to be greater, more famous, than someone like Imam Bukhari, rahmatullahi alayhi? Who could aspire to have a memory like his, a fame like his, an authority like his? True. Some, one scholar visited Egypt, and he said, in Egypt I met 30 ulama. Every single one of them said to me that our one desire in life is to see the face of Muhammad ibn Ismail al-Bukhari. They wanted to just see his face. Truly. He was that famous, that capable, because Allah had chosen him. But even he was a victim of envy. In Naysabur, he was invited to the city of Naysabur in modern-day Iran. Originally, he used to be called Nishabur. The Arabic is Naysabur. But the Persian name is Nishabur. So he, huge city, huge city. One of the greatest tragedies is, is that it was a city of knowledge and learning. But the Mongols, after Genghis Khan, his descendants, in their desire to conquer the world, I spoke earlier about the ego not being satisfied with the leadership of their own tribe or region in their desire to conquer the world. What had happened was, uh, I believe it was Genghis Khan's son-in-law, his daughter's husband, he was killed in the battle for Nishabur. Nishabur. It was a city of knowledge and learning. She wanted revenge just because her husband was killed. And her demand was that for the life of her husband 
the entire population of the whole grand city of Nisabur should be exterminated. Man, woman, old, young, child, baby, infant. They erected skulls of the inhabitants of the entire city. The city was pillaged and plundered. Not a single soul was spared. They weren't even taken as prisoners. That's what ego does. That's why I said one is never happy with the dunya. Never. Genghis Khan killed his own brother in his childhood. So, Imam Bukhari, when he went to Naysabur, what's remarkable is Genghis Khan's descendants, one of his grandchildren, Barke Khan, he embraced Islam. And do you know where he embraced Islam? Bukhara. So he went to Bukhara and there he embraced Islam. So Barke Khan, uh, he embraced Islam, but Imam Bukhari, he went to Naysabur and he was invited there by the multitudes and by the scholars and the leadership alike. He was received many miles out of Naysabur. They showered him with gold sovereigns, with dirhams, with silver. But in the end, he had to leave the city alone. And the day before he left the city, he feared for his life. And one of his students who left the city with him, only two people left with him, Imam Bukhari, Imam Muslim, and this student, Ibn Salama. So he spoke to him. And this was Imam Bukhari's reply, imagine. This was his reply. He said, when he was told that, look, you know, these people are against you, and this one particular scholar, he, he is most powerful in this city, in fact, in the whole of Khurasan, Transoxania, and especially in the city of Naysabur. It was a huge city at the time, one of the main capital cities. So he said that we have no choice in this affair, and he is most powerful, the scholar. And he opposes you. Do you know what Imam Bukhari's reply was? He put his hand on his beard, lowered his head, and he recited the Quran. He said, He said, I submit my affair to Allah. Indeed, Allah is watchful, watchful over his servants. He said, I did not. He said, Allah knows. He said, Oh Allah, you know that I did not seek to stay in the city of Naysabur. In arrogance, or in haughtiness, or boastfulness. The only reason I chose to stay here is that I could not go back to my own homeland of Bukhara because all my opponents are most powerful and dominant there. So his opponents, because of envy, had driven him from the city of Bukhara, his, his birthplace. Eventually he had come to Naysabur. He was being driven from here. And his words were, and he said, 
Oh Allah, you know that I did not want to stay here in haughtiness, boastfulness or arrogance, but only because of the overwhelming dominance of my opponents in my homeland. And then he told his students, he said, he said, I believe that this person does not oppose me, for, does not oppose me for any reason except out of envy for what Allah has bestowed on me. So he said to his student, do not worry, tomorrow I shall leave. So ulama are, and he, his life was tragic. He, he then went from Naysabur, he went back to Bukhara again. He did go back to Bukhara with the hope of being, remaining there, but he was driven out again. Then he went north to Baykand. He couldn't stay there. Then he decided to go to Samarqand, which is... All of these cities are in Naysabur is a modern-day Iran. So he went back to Bukhara, which is in the west of Uzbekistan, uh, modern-day Uzbekistan. He then went north, which is still in Uzbekistan, to Baykand. Then he couldn't stay there, so he decided to travel all the way to the furthest end of modern-day Uzbekistan, to the furthest end of Khurasan, which was in the city of Samarqand. He travelled to Samarqand. But as he was arriving near Samarqand, he was told that we don't want you here. The people of Samarqand had split into two. Half of them wanted him, half didn't want him. Now this was a man that ulama would pray that we just want to see his face. And now people didn't want them in their city. So the city fell into two, arguing amongst themselves. Half said we don't want him, we won't allow him to come into the city. So he then decided to camp at his, amongst his relatives in a village 20 miles from the centre of Samarqand in a village called Khartang. He had actually had relatives there. He was there. He was so sick of everything. Being who he was, he actually made dua to Allah in the month of Ramadan. Oh Allah, Allahumma qaddaqat alayya al-ardu bima rahubat faqbidni ilayk. Oh Allah, the earth, despite its vastness, had become, has become narrow and restricted for me. Oh Allah, claim me unto yourself. He prayed for death. Bukhari prayed for death because of the suffering he had experienced at the hands of the people, laity and scholars alike, laity because of their ignorance and scholars because of their envy. And he prayed for death. Allah accepted his dua. Within the month, on the night of Eid, he passed away in Khartang, in the village, and he was buried there. And that's Bukhari. That was the death and the fate he met. Now, why would anyone want to look at a scholar and think, MashaAllah, a Qari, I want to be like him. An Alim, I want to be like him. I want people to sit around me and listen to me and sit at my feet whilst I lecture. There is no glory or gain in this, none whatsoever. So the envy that we should have, benign envy, indeed should be for the Qur'an, should be for knowledge, should be for wisdom, or should be for charity, as is mentioned in this hadith, but only sincere knowledge, wisdom, Qur'an, and only sincere charity. Not for praise, not for gain, name, not for gain, name or fame, none at all. We should be like the Sahaba radiallahu anhum, pure of heart. Truly, the Sahaba radiallahu anhum 
were so sincere, they did not envy each other. Allah says of them, Allah says in Surah Al-Hashr, speaking of the Ansar companions who were the indigenous Arabs of Medina, the Quraysh Muhajirun had emigrated to them. Allah now speaking of the Ansar says, and those who had occupied the city and adopted faith from before, i.e. the Ansar, they love those who have emigrated to them. Now, before I explain the next part of the verse, we need to understand the background. The Muhajirun were few. There were only approximately 80 to 100 Muhajirun who emigrated with the Prophet So they were a minority. They came to Medina. The population of Medina was in its thousands. Many embraced Islam. They embraced the Muhajirun. They received them. They accommodated them. They gave them homes, lands, shelter, wealth. They fed them. They distributed their wealth. They were made brothers. They did so much for them. And they were the majority. These, this was their city, their settlement, their inhabitation, their lands, their orchards, their farms and fields. And they shared everything. And yet still, the Prophet ﷺ always considered the Muhajirun to be the elites. They did. He did. The Muhajirun were the ones who surrounded him. The Muhajirun were the ones who stood in the first row. Immediately behind the Prophet ﷺ, in Salah, he was a Muhajirun. In front of him, in his gatherings, who sat in front of him, the Muhajirun. Allah always spoke of the Muhajirun first and then the Ansar. The hypocrites of Medina, the hypocrites, they used to look at this and say, see what we've done? We've sheltered them, we've fed them, we've accommodated them, we've received them. They came as refugees. Now they lord it over us. That's what Abdullah ibn Ubay ibn Salul said. They lord it over us. Their example, Abdullah ibn Ubay ibn Salul said, our example and their example is the old Arab saying, Sammin kalbak ya'kulk, feed your dog so that it devours you. I.e. we fed them and fattened them. And now when they are powerful, they wish to devour us. That's how the hypocrites thought. The Ansar were so clean and pure of heart, they had no such thoughts. They saw that the Muhajirun are privileged in choice. They are the elites. They are always mentioned first. They are always given preference. They are always given first choice. They are always with the Messenger of Allah. And yet Allah's, and they looked at this every single day, they saw this. And yet what does Allah say of them? They harbor no reservation, i.e. envy in their hearts for what the muhajirun have been given. That's how clean and pure they were of heart. And Allah ends the verse with the words, And whoever is protected from the greed and the avarice of his soul, And these are the ones who are successful. That's how the Muhajirun, the Ansar Sahaba were pure and clean of heart. I'll end with one final hadith which I hope can inspire us and lead us 
to following in the footsteps of the Sahaba in being clean of heart and not harboring any ill will, malice, hatred, and especially not harboring any envy towards anyone. Anas ibn Ma- Imam Ahmad ibn Hanbal relates this hadith in his Musnad that Anas ibn Malik anhu relates that once we were seated with the Prophet وسلم, and suddenly the Prophet وسلم, said, a man is going to emerge and come out to you. He is one of the people of Jannah. So we all looked and a man came out of his house. Having just done wudu, water dripping from his limbs, from his beard, and he had his sandal strung around his arm, left arm. So the Sahaba watched him. Didn't say anything. The next day, the Prophet ﷺ said the same thing. A man will soon emerge and come out to you who is one of the people of Jannah. Sahaba anhum watched, waited. The same man came out, water dripping, having just done wudu from his beard, with his sandal strung around his left hand, arm. Third day, Prophet said exactly the same thing, a man will come out to you, who is one of the people of Jannah. The same man came out. So Anas bin Malik said, same, water dripping from his limbs, from his beard, sandals hung around his left arm. Anas bin Malik says, Abdullah ibn Amr ibn al-As followed him and went to his house and requested to stay with him. So he received him. Abdullah ibn Amr ibn al-As spent three nights, three days and nights with him in his home. Why? Because so after three days, so why did he do that? Abdullah ibn Amr ibn al-As wanted to see what does this person do? That he is walking on earth and thrice over three days, the Messenger of Allah said he is one of the people of Jannah. Thrice. What does he do? So he watched him for three days in the privacy of his home. And then after three days he approached him and he said, I would like to tell you that I came not because of any need, but I came to stay with you because I need, I wanted to see. What do you do? Because the Messenger of Allah said to you, said about you, that you are one of the people of Jannah. So the man replied, and do you know what he would do? Abdullah ibn Amr ibn As said, he wouldn't do anything. He'd go out for fard salah. When he would come for salah time, he'd go out of his house for salah. But at home, he wouldn't do anything. No ibadah. At night, maybe he rose for tahajjud. No. At night, he wouldn't even rise for prayer. He would stay asleep. The most he would do is that if he woke up in the middle of the night, he would take the name of Allah and then go back to sleep. That's all he would do. And in the morning, he'd go out for fajr. Bas. So he said, I haven't seen you do anything. What do you do? So the sahabi said, I do nothing except what you have seen. So Abdullah ibn Amr ibn As turned around to leave. When he approached the door, the man called him back. And he said, come here. He said, I don't do anything other than what you have seen. But there, are, there is something else. He said, what is that? He said, I ensure that I bear no malice in my heart towards any Muslim. And number two... I am not envious of anyone 
for anything which Allah has given them. He said, these are the two things I do. I do not bear any malice or envy in my heart. And number two, I do not harbour any envy in my heart towards anyone for which something which Allah has given them. I do not envy anyone, anything Allah has given them of his grace and bounty. So Abdullah ibn Amr ibn As said, this is what has elevated you to that rank and this is something which we cannot achieve. Which means that this is something very, very difficult. Of course it is. We have to work for it. There wasn't any excessive ibadah, no tahajjud, only followed salah, well, uh, meaning salah in the masjid, not just followed, but going to the masjid. No other excessive ibadah, but a clean and pure heart, bereft and free of hatred, of malice, of envy. This is what elevated him to the rank of Jannah. To rid oneself of envy means to be at peace in this dunya and at peace in the akhirah. It means to be a person of Jannah. I pray that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala makes us amongst those who is free from envy. May Allah enable us to be happy at other people's happiness and to be hurt at their hurt and not to be happy at their hurt or hurt at their happiness because that is not the character of a believer, it's a character of a munafiq, a hypocrite. وصلى الله وسلم على عبده ورسوله نبينا محمد وعلى آله وصحبه أجمعين سبحانك اللهم وبحمدك شهد ولا إله إلا أنت استغفرك وأتوب إليك